When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, everyone. And welcome to the History of Byzantium, Episode 11, The Eastern Provinces. Last time, we walked the streets of the imperial capital to see the home of the Byzantine Empire. Before we move on, I should alert you all to a very cool webpage where you can see what Constantinople and its great buildings might have looked like. Big thanks to listener Charlie for his post at thehistoryofbyzantium.wordpress.com where you can find the link to the Archeo 3D website. Today, we head into the economic heartlands of the empire as we hop across the Bosphorus into the eastern provinces. The first part of any answer to the question of why the Western Roman Empire fell and the East survived is geography. The Eastern Romans were protected from the Franks, Goths, Vandals, and Huns by their location. The walls of Constantinople and the Imperial fleet guarded the Western approaches. The Persian Empire protected the East, and there were also mountains in the North, deserts in the South, and the Mediterranean in the middle. The East, in other words, was inaccessible to the forces which brought the West down. The Huns had come closest to threatening the East, and they had been paid off with a massive ransom of gold. And that is, of course, another key to the East's success. The most prosperous provinces in the Roman Empire were always the Eastern ones. The East had been home to civilization long before the Romans conquered the Western Mediterranean. They were more connected to the rest of the world, where the riches of India and China could be reached, and they contained some of the best agricultural land available in the Fertile Crescent and the Nile Valley. With most of the West out of imperial hands, we had better take a look around the provinces that now form the core of the Byzantine Empire, and the dangers lurking beyond the frontiers. Once more, I turn to our magician of mapping, Constantinus Placidus, for a map of the eastern provinces. And you can find this map on the Facebook page or at thehistoryofbyzantium.wordpress.com. I should warn you that this is a map of the whole Roman Empire from the 4th century. So again, you will need to zoom in on the east, and there is the possibility for anachronisms. 
However, this is such a good map for showing the details of the land we are traveling through that I couldn't resist using it. Across the Bosphorus from Constantinople stood Anatolia, or Asia Minor, modern Turkey. This was administered by two dioceses, Asiana and Pontica. Asiana contained the populous, fertile lowlands of the west. Pontica was over the mountains, covering the rest of the peninsula, including the large barren plateau in the middle. The western shore had been settled by Greeks as early as the 900s BC. The city-states on the west coast were the cause of the famous war between the Greeks and the Persians in the 490s and 480s BC. The same area remained prosperous in the Byzantine age, with cities like Sardis, Smyrna and Miletus boasting populations of over 15,000, and Ephesus perhaps as high as 25,000. The people still spoke Greek and were generally orthodox in their faith. The further east you went, the more sympathy there was likely to be for reconciliation with the Monophysites. These Greek-speaking communities dominated the shoreline running north along the Black Sea and south along the Mediterranean. The land in the west and along the coasts was fertile and allowed for good quantities of cereal crops to be grown along with other traditional Mediterranean produce, such as fruits, vines, and olives. Once you headed up and into the mountains, things began to change. For centuries of Roman rule, many different peoples with their own languages had lived across Anatolia. Speakers of Phrygian, Galatian, Isaurian, Lyconian, Cappadocian, Pisidian, and several Pontic dialects were still living there in the 3rd century. By the 6th, many of these communities were being absorbed into the dominant Greek culture. The spread of Christianity had been the major catalyst for this, as Greek clergy, reading their liturgies in Greek, had been the main source of conversion and continued practice. The central plateau of Anatolia was dominated by stock farming, or the raising of animals, often on large ranch-like estates where sheep, goats, cattle and pigs would be found. These animals provided more than just meat, but also skins, wool, milk, felt, glue, horns, bone and gut for decorative and practical purposes. Horses were, of course, crucial for both the army and communications. Major stud farms were located in Phrygia, Lydia, and Cappadocia, where there was plentiful grazing land. These were well located geographically, too, as the empire's major arterial roads ran across Anatolia, connecting Constantinople with Antioch, the Persian frontier, and down on south towards Palestine and Egypt. The northeast of Anatolia is dominated by the Armenian mountains, which lead north to the Caucasus and east into the Persian Empire. This was, of course, a strategically vital area and also a source of gold. To the southeast are the Taurus Mountains, where silver, iron and tin could be found. The Tauruses don't cut the peninsula off neatly. There is still land beyond them along the south coast, but this was part of the Diocese of the East. 
Here you would find Isauria, which is featured very heavily in our story so far, Cilicia, and the island of Cyprus, a good source of copper. Once out of Anatolia, you were in Syria, and would come to one of the empire's three major cities, Antioch. Founded by one of Alexander the Great's generals in the 4th century BC, the city had been favoured by the Romans as their eastern headquarters since the days of Augustus. It was well situated amongst fertile lands, near to the Mediterranean, and both close enough to, but far enough from, the Persians to be a sensible base for the seat of eastern administration. With a population of around 100,000 at its peak, the city was the largest for hundreds of miles. Christianity came early to the city because of its proximity to Jerusalem and the first Christian converts. You may recall from the history of Rome that Julian the Apostate was thoroughly frustrated by the people of the city when he attempted to revive pagan traditions in their backyard. The city was the seat of a patriarch, who was the senior bishop for the whole of the East, excluding Egypt. As you've probably gathered by now, the Eastern patriarchs and the clergy working around them had developed their own theological traditions and ideas separate from the prevailing thought in Constantinople, and quite different from what the popes in Rome were thinking. These separate Christian greenhouses allowed new ideas to grow and become entrenched, despite being quite alien to fellow believers living only, say, a hundred miles away. It was from Antioch that the Monophysite controversy found its origins. I won't attempt to open that can of worms today, but as you already know, the East now had a community of Monophysite Christians living amongst the Orthodox. As I mentioned back in episode 2, the danger for the empire was that this religious disunity would take on an ethnic dimension. The Greek language had not spread to the rural population in Syria as it would do in Anatolia. Instead, the native Syriac language, derived from Aramaic, would live on, and Christian liturgies with Monophysite elements were translated into Syriac, thus creating whole communities who could not relate in multiple ways to the Greek orthodoxy of those living in Constantinople. The Syrian countryside was divided between the fertile west and the eastern deserts. From the east came much of its wealth, as the Silk Road to China could most easily reach the Byzantines via this route. The region also produced wine, oil, linens and copper. To the south was Palestine, whose regional capital of Caesarea had perhaps 15 or 20,000 inhabitants. And south and west of that was Egypt, the empire's most important economic asset. The Nile's rich alluvial soils produced a large, reliable surplus of wheat and a substantial crop of flax which would go toward making linens. Egypt had a monopoly on papyrus and had the finest glass manufacturing of the Byzantine world. Alexandria was the only major city in the region, with a population of over 100,000. As you also probably know, Egypt's tax burden was paid for largely in grain. About 240 metric tons of it would be shipped out every year the equivalent of a tax bill of £11,000 of gold. 
the average Egyptian resented this system. The growing, collecting and shipping of the grain was enforced by the authorities. Prices were strictly controlled, so making a profit was difficult, and many of the jobs involved were hereditary. As in Syria, Greek was spoken in any major town or city, but not in the countryside. The Coptic language and liturgy continued to dominate in rural Egypt, and the country was by now decidedly monophysite. Some of the major forces in that movement had been leading bishops at Alexandria, and the city had long seen itself as the intellectual capital of Christianity. There was always an undercurrent of regional power struggle in the emotive debates about Christ's nature. So, the Eastern Empire was geographically and economically in a similar place to how it had been for centuries. What had changed greatly was the role of Christianity. Next episode, we'll talk in a little more depth about the position of the church in society. But you can see here that it was having knock-on effects on how different communities identified themselves and felt about one another. In some areas, this saw a unifying effect, but in others, it was very divisive. It's now time to look beyond the frontiers at the neighbours of the empire. The eastern border remained the dominant foreign policy concern of the Byzantines as it had been since the time of Augustus. The Sassanid Persians and their predecessors had traded victories fairly evenly with the Romans. For every Trajan there was a Shahpur, ready to sack the other side's border cities, but not actually go through with conquest. The Roman Empire had always been much larger than the Persian, However, an equilibrium had been maintained because although the Romans might be capable of fielding larger armies, in reality those men were needed to defend the West. So the loss of the Western provinces might seem like a huge blow to the Byzantine position, but in reality the amount of troops facing the Persians would remain at a comparable level. I think the balance of power had shifted, though. During the War of 502-505, to there was no possible suggestion that Anastasius would invade Persian territory to seek revenge. We'll talk more about the Byzantine military position in the next episode, but certainly Anastasius was aware that he still needed troops to defend his remaining western provinces, and couldn't afford to shift his focus entirely to dealing with the Persians. As you may remember from episode 5, the Persians and Byzantines had enjoyed a long period of relative peace during the 5th century. Both sides were dealing with Hun invasions and didn't have the strength to take advantage of the other's calamities. The Persians had suffered a catastrophic defeat while battling the White Huns in 484. The need to pay the annual tribute that the Huns demanded, was a major reason for the war started by King Kavad in 502. If you turn to this week's second map, you can see the border in more detail. In a familiar refrain, it's the amazing Constantinus Placidus who made this extremely helpful map. For those of you who struggle with the geography of the East, I definitely recommend that you check this out. If you look at the southern border, the red dotted line, it follows a minor river between the Euphrates and the Tigris before reaching Armenia in the north. 
The cities which Kavad attacked can all be seen here. About halfway up the Armenian border, you can see Theodosiopolis. South of that along the border is Martyropolis. Then next door is Amida, and southwest of that is Edessa. You may also recall that when order was restored, Anastasius invested heavily in the city of Dara, which lies southeast from Amida, on the border opposite the Persian city of Nisbis. This was now the focus of defence south of the Armenian mountains. If you take one last look at the map, you can see our old friend Palmyra as the southernmost city on the map. The major Persian cities of Tessaphon and Babylon would lie roughly parallel to the east of Palmyra, hidden on this map by the quay. The experiences of Rome and Persia during their time of peace were interestingly similar. We've already touched on the military dominance of the Huns in the north, and just like Aetius in the west, Kavad had been forced to flee and seek help before being put back on the throne. The reason he had fled was because he'd attempted to break the power of the traditional Persian elite by supporting a Zoroastrian sect, the Mazdakites. One of the teachings of Mazdak was that property should be owned communally. Predictably, this led to great ructions within Persian society as the haves and have-nots fought over these new ideas. When Kavad was back on his throne, he didn't begin instituting these proto-communist ideas, but many in the nobility were uneasy. The pressure to pay off his Hun benefactors and unite his warring people led to war with Byzantium. The peace of 505 quietened things down on the border for the next 15 years. However, rather like the Monophysites in the Byzantine world, the Mazdakites kept Persian politics bubbling during the last years of Anastasius's reign. I'm afraid the rest of the empire's neighbours are a complicated bunch, many of whom haven't made much of an appearance in the history of Rome. They will play important roles in the history of Byzantium, though, so take in what you can now, and it will pay off later. The eastern border of the empire had never been entirely secure or fixed. This is because the Armenian mountains in the north, the Syrian desert in the centre, and the Arabian desert to the south allowed for some groups of people to disappear out of either Roman or Persian control. History of Rome listeners know all about this from the time that the oasis city of Palmyra was able to effectively rule the whole eastern empire during the crisis of the 3rd century. The situation along the desert borders had become more insecure during the Byzantine era. This was partly due to the growth in organisation and power of a people we are about to become very accustomed to talking about, the Arabs. Arabic peoples had lived north of the Arabian Peninsula for centuries before the Romans arrived. Once the empire did take hold, though, relations between the two sides had been fairly quiet. Occasionally, Arabic raiders would appear and perform hit-and-run attacks on the settled communities, and the Romans would usually pay the larger tribes to keep the smaller ones in line. However, through the History of Rome podcast, we saw what being neighbours with the Empire could do to a people. 
when Augustus arrived at the Rhine and Danube, the Germans to the north were small, containable tribes used to squabbling with one another. But centuries of access to Roman wealth had pushed each subsequent generation to pool their resources so that they could get better and better deals from the empire, either through negotiation, force, or usually both. The ironic consequence of the Roman desire to secure their borders was to make their neighbours constantly strive to become stronger and therefore a greater threat to them. A similar process had taken place in the southeast corner of the empire, where Arabic political units had been growing in search of access to the wealth of the Roman and Persian worlds to the north. There are three tribal groups we need to be aware of. If you want, you can return to the map I posted with episode 8 that shows the world in AD 500, and you will find most of the peoples I'm describing. The three Arabic groups are the Ghassanids, the Lachmids, and the Kindah. On the map you can see their political distribution, but I wouldn't take those geographical markers too seriously. As nomadic, pastoral people, the Arabic tribes were constantly moving about to suit the needs of their animals. Since the 4th century, when the raiding became a concern to the Romans, they had appointed one of the tribal leaders as a phylarch. This was the equivalent of the rank of patrician or nobleman, so just as with Theodoric of the Ostrogoths, this phylarch was now a man of status in the Roman world, who would hopefully keep his people in line and allied with Roman interests. Obviously this status came with cash or supplies of food for the phylarch's people. During Anastasius's time, his chosen sheikh was Harith of the Kindar, but their power was waning, and during Justinian's time, the Ghassanids and Lachmids will be the key players. The Ghassanids had migrated north from Arabia around the end of the 3rd century. By now they spoke both Aramaic and Arabic, and many were Monophysite Christians who had established themselves in northwest Jordan on the borders of the Byzantine world. The Lachmids had migrated from the Yemen to the Tigris-Euphrates Valley on the Persian border at about the same time that Parthia became Persia again. Many in the area were Christians, but the royal house at this time was pagan. Naturally then, on lines of religion and geography, the Lachmids allied themselves with the Persians and the Ghassanids would turn to Byzantium. The future Lachmid king, Al-Mundihir Ibn al-Numan III, <clears throat> took part in a great raid on Byzantine Syria during the war in 503. To the north, the situation in Armenia had been stable since 428. Byzantium controlled one-fifth of the kingdom, which was ruled by various important Armenian families. The Persian side or Pers Armenia, as it was known in Roman sources, was closely monitored by the Sassanids. Armenia had become a Christian kingdom way back in 314, before even Constantinople was dedicated, and so naturally the Persians were suspicious of any attempts by the Armenians to foster better relations with their co-religionists on the other side of the border. Now things get more complicated, and I strongly recommend you find that map of the world in AD 500 to make sure you've got the next bit straight. 
North of Armenia are the Caucasus Mountains and the eastern coast of the Black Sea. The area was crucial to both Byzantine and Persian interests since the arrival of the Huns. Both empires had been badly wounded by Hun invasions, and so the defence of the passes through the mountains was now a serious security issue. You may remember that it was the cost of this defence which the Persian king Kavad used as a pretext for starting a war with Anastasius. So the first kingdom north of Armenia was Iberia, or modern Georgia, which had converted to Christianity like its near neighbour. North of that, on the Black Sea coast, was Lazica, also largely Christian but currently allied with Persia, as were the Iberians. This meant that Laz and Iberian kings went to Tessaphon for investiture, and the Zoroastrian religion had a quasi-official standing. To the north of them were the Abazgians, whose dense forests protected them from Laz's domination. To the east were the Albanians, confusingly named I know, but they lived in the area that is modern Azerbaijan and were firmly in the Persian orbit. Controlling the Darial Passes, or the Caspian Gates to the north, were the Alans, leftover Sarmatian tribes who hadn't been swept west with their brethren who had joined the Vandals when they crossed into the Roman world and invaded Spain and then Africa. The Byzantines had relatively friendly relations with the remaining Alans and relied on them for information about the Bulgars and Huns beyond them. Finally, not on the map, but worth mentioning, in the mountains on the border of the Byzantine world and the Black Sea were the Tsani, mountain dwellers who lived by plunder. Rome had long paid them an annual subsidy to keep quiet. Fascinating stuff, right? I know it may seem difficult to take in now, but hopefully you can see the significance of these small kingdoms for the future relations of Byzantium and Persia. As we've seen, religion was coming to play a significant role in the character of the great empires. To have a collection of small states in a strategically vital region gradually becoming Christian had major implications for both imperial powers. Finally, if you just glance at your map one last time, you will see a people living south of Byzantine Egypt called the Blemies. These tribes had been raiding into imperial territory with increasing frequency during Anastasius' reign. Imperial control was slipping south of the first cataract of the Nile, where once the Romans had controlled oases much further south. Far to the south was the kingdom of Aksum, modern Ethiopia, another early convert to Christianity amongst the empire's neighbours. The Byzantines hoped that friendly relations with Aksum would help them secure some of the trade coming into the Red Sea. So that's it. Our geographical tour of the empire is complete. What have we learned? The key point is, of course, that the world has changed out of all recognition from the age of the Antonines, when tribes beyond the imperial borders were of little concern. Now there are enemies on every border. Goths in Italy, Vandals in Africa, Bulgars, Slavs and Germans on the Danube, Persians and Arabs in the east, 
and tribes growing restive out in the deserts and mountains. Beyond this political fragmentation, there was a natural process that was increasing the insecurity in the Byzantine world. The border between the desert and the sown land was decreasing. During Augustus's time, the Roman world had expanded to the fringes of nomadic land, where there didn't seem to be anything else worth conquering. However, by the 6th century, agricultural land was contracting, and the power of the hit-and-run nomads was increasing. In North Africa, as we've seen, the Vandals weren't able to control former imperial lands on the borders, and were pushed back. In Syria, the Arab tribes were now so powerful that their leaders were courted, like the Goths and the Franks. We don't know why this retraction occurred, and perhaps one day we will come to understand the history of our climate in a way which might shed light on this. For now, though, the Byzantines have a lot of issues to be concerned by, and in two weeks' time we will see how they are set up to deal with them. We will finish our tour of the 6th century world by looking at the state of the army, the church, and the state. Then finally, I think I can say I've given you all the context you need for the narrative to move forward again, as we've put off poor old Anastasius's funeral for quite long enough. It's also time for me to say once more that the music for the podcast comes with kind permission from musicalley.com, and to say thank you all for listening, and for your feedback on iTunes, Facebook, and at thehistoryofbyzantium.wordpress.com. deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.